Hello everyone, I'm Mike Ward and welcome to Conversations in Healthcare, a broadcast series brought to you by Clarivate. In these broadcasts, we reach out to key opinion leaders across the healthcare ecosystem and talk about the challenges they face and the solutions um, that they have been developing uh, to those particular challenges. The pivotal role of the biotech sector in the discovery and development of new medicines is, is well recognised. Indeed, nine of the 10 best-selling drugs today um, that are being sold by multinational pharmaceutical companies actually uh, originated, uh, originally created and developed in the labs of biotech companies. An activity that has relied heavily on the financial support from the venture capital community. In light of this, I'm delighted to be joined by Francesco De Robertis, a co-founder and managing uh, partner at Medici, one of the most prominent financial supporters of innovative biotech activity. And he's going to provide some insights in how the biotech VC model has evolved in the past decade or so from creating fully integrated pharma businesses through the support of platform technologies and a hybrid of the two towards the emergence and evolution of the asset-centric approach. So Francesco, uh, thanks so much for, for, for joining me. Hi, Mike. Thank you very much for inviting me. Francesco, you have been an active venture capitalist in the biotech sector since the late 1990s. Can you describe you know, what were the challenges biotech-focused uh, venture capitalists were facing um, that prompted the creation of you know, what is now called the asset-centric model? Yes, thank you, Mike, for the question. Absolutely. So when we started many, many years back in the late 90s, uh, there was not a lot of venture capital in Europe. There were some, you know, pioneer firms like Sofinova Partners, like Avingworth, like Atlas Ventures. And, you know, the list was really pretty much that one. So these are among the oldest venture capital institutions on the Europe or European soil. And, and actually, um, you know, when entrepreneurs really needed to create or wanted to create companies, there were really those three shops plus a bunch of few others that really were uh, relevant sources of, of capital and advice. And actually, that is why my partners and I decided in the late 90s to create Index Ventures as an additional shop that would provide venture capital financing, not only actually for you know, biotech companies, but most importantly for technology companies. Index Ventures was focused two-thirds, uh, you know, 70%. Uh, on technology and then one third or the minority in biotechnology. And then as we put index ventures up and we started you know, to, to play the game, it was very exciting because actually you could be, I happen to be lucky enough to have uh, as one of my very few inv first investments, the seed round of Gemmap. Now Gemmap was available to an, a venture capital firm like index which back then in the late 90s hardly had any cash available exactly because the landscape was very, very immature. Now, I want to say that that was the blessing for index, but at the same time represents a weakness of the venture capital market because, of course, a company like Gemab, you know, could only go to so many shops. And so that has been true for many, many years. And as we, uh, you know, being on the board of Gemab and witnessing the growth of Gemab, you know, I was lucky enough that we established ourselves as a venture capital firm, among others. And, 
And of course, I started feeling what was the key challenge for venture, for sorry, for entrepreneurs in Europe, and basically the fact that venture capitalists were very few, and that for the long runs of a drug development and discovery company, uh, the available venture capital resources were absolutely not sufficient, and that was really going to cause downstream uh, domino effects and consequences, which were. Um, you know, misalignment of incentives between venture capitalists and management teams. Because of course, when you know that you have, you know, just a few dollars available, but you know that the goal line is beyond what the rich power of those dollars, you need to really find other ways of being able to finance. And those other ways start to collide with the interests of venture capitalists. So all this immaturity and, 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 and scarcity that I was seeing in the in the by in the early stage biotech scene in Europe is really what lent what pushed me. I was still very young, so I was unencumbered from any kind of business model that had been done, had been followed, you know, for many years already. So I was I was back then, you know, after a few years of JAMA, I was still in my early, very early 30s. So I was still unencumbered and 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 I was thinking to myself, there must be a better way of doing, of, of helping company creation in Europe. There must be a, a more tailored way of doing venture capital to Europe. And the answer to that question was, of course, as you know very well, Mike, because you have been a very insightful observer of the evolution of the business models in, this, in the industry for many, many years. You know, asset centricity is the answer that we found to that set, to that set of weaknesses. And you know, we started developing this idea, and that was not an idea fully shaped idea from one day to the to another. But of course, it was a an initial direction of travel that I started to take in 2003, 2004. The first real investment that really followed asset centricity was closed in 2005, and then is when you and I discussed at length about what I meant with asset centricity. And since then, there has been an evolution and adaptation and lessons learned. But before I go too so, far, that is really why, what was the key core weakness of the biotech industry in Europe in the late 90s? So, so it'd be useful, um, because I mean, you, know, you were one of the pioneers of that asset-centric model. If you could sort of you know, explain you know, how, it, you know, how it was designed to you know, solve the, sort of the challenges of company building models that you that you just outlined, the idea that there was a, a sort of a disconnect between the availability of venture capital and the timelines that actually required to, to develop uh, new drugs. Absolutely. So this is key. This is key. And this is behind the insight of asset centricity. And, you know, quoting one of my business partners, David Granger, every biotech company from the startup phase, you know, all the way up, Every biotech company has been always developed, originated, started as a pipeline of compounds. By definition, a pipeline of compounds is composed of different compounds, some of which are really earning high conviction level, and some of which are less convincing because maybe they're more speculative or they are less advanced or they are more unclear, but still very justified and, and very possible, very fair as assets. And what David Granger, my business partner, calls them, every pipeline is a mix of gold medals and silver medals. 
not because people decide to focus on silver medals, but because silver medals are, you know, half of the three quarters of the assets are lower conviction before they become high conviction. And so the, the big problem that I saw was that a silver medal and a gold medal, they cost the same amount of money to be developed. They cost the same amount of money, but the reward side of the equation is really driven up by the gold medals more than the silver medals. And when I was investing in Gemma, there was, a, of course, a collection of great assets, some of which turned out to be gold medals, some of which failed or turned out to be disappointing assets. But because Gemma was so beautiful and big and, and cash rich, we could still succeed at Gemma, even though the first assets failed. So my reasoning was the following. Is there a way, and this is the novelty of the business model again, and this is the core of asset centricity. Is there a way of only investing in gold medals rather than silver medals? It sounds very easy, rational. Who would want to invest in silver medals when you know which ones are the gold medals? The problem is just that one, that when you create a company with a pipeline, you don't really know which ones are gold medals and silver medals because it's not so clear to say, this is a high conviction asset, 70% conviction. This is a 63% conviction. It is not that clear. So it's very difficult to know which ones are the gold and the metal, uh, metal um, the silver metal assets. So I decided that I was going to use one way to sort of enrich the probability that I would only invest in gold medals and leave by the sideways silver medals. And that model or that proxy, that filter was, I will not invest in GEMABs again. By the way, I love GEMAB. There's been my career has been built on GEMAB. So I'm not talking badly about GEMAB. I'm just talking about if you're not the best company in Europe, like GEMAB is be, has been, you need to find another way of financing your innovation. And the other way that I found was I'm going to invest in startups that only commit to develop one molecule. And you could say, how the hell can you decide that investing in one molecule is less risky than investing in a pipeline of molecules? And the point goes, to the level, to the quality and value of people. If you can create a single asset company around a single asset with top people that commit their professional career to a single asset, that single asset in my book represents a high conviction asset where people are happy to commit their outcomes to that asset. It can still fail that asset, but in their best uh, belief, in their souls, in their brains, in their heart, that asset is worth their career. That is a high conviction asset. A silver, a silver medal or an asset that probably is not as convincing as a gold medal asset probably would not be good enough to catalyze the formation of a single asset company. It could be, could be good enough to be asset number four or five in a pipeline company, but you will find less often a single asset company formed around a silver medal asset. And you know that was the insight that basically in 2005 led me to say, let's do single asset investments. Let's see. If you fast forward the movie and you fast forward 15 years when I've done the formal analysis and you say, okay, was that insight a good one or not? And then I, I, you know, we counted, we simply measured the outcome of success in our portfolio that we had when we checked the R&D maturation. So the success in phase two, uh, to, to, you know, to speak in our jargon, uh, of a portfolio composed of single asset companies. And if we compared to the success rate, to the phase two success rate of a portfolio 
composed of the classically pipeline shaped kind of companies, it was very clear that the hit rate had gone really much, much higher. You know, above 60% of the assets that we had invested in companies that were single asset containing companies, you know, more than 60% of them turned out to be successful companies, either acquired or phase two readouts. And the reason for that was not that we had become smarter or that we had had better deal flow. I'm sure that that is also related. But the fact is that by pushing the opportunity cost of the decision that the founders of these management of these companies were facing because they couldn't say, okay, we don't know about the asset, but you know, we have three assets. One of them will end up working and you pay for three assets, but only one asset is really the value driving asset. So because we were telling them, no, it's just that asset. Do you believe in it or you don't believe in it? Because the opportunity cost of decision-making, and that is the economic proxy that really describes asset centricity, because the opportunity cost of their decision was so high and because they were brilliant people in their field, we pushed to 60, 65% the probability that they were right and the probability that we would be successful. And once we have proved the concept that actually that filter, that artificial decision, single asset companies is an artificial filter if you want, but that that correlated to that kind of increased success rate, we said, okay, bingo. We have found a way in which, you know, there may be some silver assets that maybe are worth being developed, but it's so expensive, the early stage biotech company capital, that probably they are better financed in different ways, in different models. That is the core principle that has been at the basis of asset centricity for the last 15, 16 years. Uh, that is a concept that we have trademarked many, many years back. The, where, the, where the plan was that you know, once you've got to that phase two proof of concept, the idea is then you move that asset onto organizations that had more financial firepower to continue with the sort of the development of those, the, those programs. Exactly. The insight is that the difficult part that big pharmaceutical companies are less naturally suited for is the very early stage serendipitous and, and randomness discovery part. When you are a large structured organization and you have labs and you have diabetes researchers that are on payroll, they're going to look for the next diabetes drug. If it turns out that that molecule is better for another kind of indication, too bad, it's lost in translation, that kind of evidence. So I really believe that where the flexibility of a deconstructed R&D environment best creates value for the pharmaceutical industry is in the early stage of R&D. And I think we have demonstrated that because many of our molecules are now inside the late stage pipelines of pharma. But then of course, as you say correctly, at phase two, phase three, once you know, with a little car, we found our track and we are now on the highway. When you are on the highway, it's about, okay, maximize your speed now. You know that you can go straight, you know it's easy to find your way now. Just, it's just about resources, and knowing how to drive, pharmaceutical companies are incredible. They've got resources, they know, they know the game, they know they're very competent organization. They are not well matching the serendipity level of our early stage R&D in my opinion. But so yes, the natural outcome for asset-centric companies was to go in phase two or phase three to go into large established commercial organizations. I mean, the, the funds that you, you, know, you established uh, index and and then what became Medici, um, but yeah, you know, the 
those funds were you know, cornerstoned by multinational pharmaceutical companies. Uh, what contribution, apart from the financial one, did they did they provide uh, you know, in the, in selection and development of the assets that you know, you decided to pick? Uh, absolutely, it was a, a, a really really strategic contribution. You know, put the movie back to <clears throat> sorry to. Um, 2010-2011, which is when we decided um, that they were going to be part of our story. So in 2004, we started playing asset-centricity. Asset-centricity is a very different ball game than classical startup build-up, which is what other VCs do, and they have to capture another part of value creation. We can discuss about that. But once I decided asset-centricity will be our game, Part of the game is that in phase two, you need to be sure that what you have been developing for the, for the previous three, four, five years, it's relevant to who is part of your match of your game now, which is the pharmaceutical companies. We did not have any pretension of wanting to go to the market, commercial sales. No, we needed to go to our intermediaries, which were the pharma companies. So it became very, very important as part of the protocol and recipe that I was designing for the success of our investment model to be sure that I would be very well connected with the mindsets, with the understanding, with the knowledge base that was you know, inside pharma. And so that is when I decided to reach out proactively to pharma that of course I was connected because some of our molecules and companies had been acquired by pharma. But then as I reached out to pharma to say, hey, we're doing something a little bit different. We're not building companies, we're developing drugs. The unmet medical need in the industry, why venture capital exists is not to create more companies. That is not the unmet need. The unmet need is there are diseases that are not addressed. That is why venture capital money has got value because we can help find those drugs. Creating companies doesn't help in that endeavor, ironically, okay? So I had this conversation with Pharma. They loved the positioning and angle of the story. And you know, in 2010, 11, I was four, five years, six years into the asset centricity. And I was starting to have the first proof of concept that actually indeed the R&D numbers were still, you know, were becoming really impressive in terms of asset centricity are in the outputs. And that is when I was able to convince the first organizations, GSK, J&J, 2011, to co-invest in the funds for what purpose? Not for the purpose of the funds. Of course, it was good to have their cash, but for the purpose of, I accepted their cash in exchange of their commitment to putting their top R&D people on my scientific advisory board and being obliged to be every three months spending a couple of days. So that was a step for me to, to lock in a bridge on these pharma companies, but not on their checkbooks, on their mind, you know, behind, right? On the, on the, on the, on, on really on the mindsets. And that is really what helped me understand better. And the contribution that they were doing was commercial relevance. Oh, Francesco, yeah, this mode of action that you want to develop in this company, yeah, it's, you know, it makes total scientific sense. We were working on this. In the end, we did not found a commercial application that was worth it. So that kind of, and there are several companies that have lost steam in our you know, practices exactly because the commercial feedback that we were getting from those farmers that were around the same table as us. So they were invested in those companies. So they were, they were really interested in optimizing the, the return on investment. They were saying, Francesco, you do what you want because we owned the decision-making but they were helping us in understanding relevance from people that are interested in, in making sure that you are right. 
not from people that can be politely telling you on a phone call, oh, yeah, that makes sense, you're right. Absolutely, it's a good insight, thank you very much. And, and then I'm not really vested in giving you a more full feedback. So that is really what has helped us <clears throat> and what has turned out to be really a key component of asset-centricity, proximity with pharma, you know, it's a key part of the equation. So what were the challenges associated with, with that approach that prompted you earlier this year to you know, create an evolved version <clears throat> of the asset-centric model? It's very important, Mike, this question, and I really would like to make sure that I am as clear as I possibly can. Asset-centricity, in the way which we have just described until now, it's something that I'm totally committed to, not because I've, I've got a, you know, a faith in something, it's just because the data are so easy to read. It's clear, it works. You know, the cost of the experiment costs less, the probability of the outcome is, you know, the probability of successful outcome is, is much higher and the write-offs cost much less. When you put those three equations together, that is productive R&D. So from a fund perspective, it's better ROI. That is the equation all every new investment and every new funds that Medici is managing is going to go through asset centricity with always the exceptions that are linked to incredible platforms that are going to move the industry to the next level. We are going to do those. But asset centricity, single asset companies is the business model that I think it's best in early stage R&D investing. <clears throat> so where does Centessa, which is what you're referring to, come into play? Over the years, as I was collecting the data point of success of asset centricity from my portfolio companies, <clears throat> and given the proximity of the pharmaceutical companies that I had on my scientific advisory board, and of course, as I created momentum with the companies that were investors in my funds, I was also able to get more pharmaceutical companies much closer to Medici. Um, you know, we have a yearly event uh, that we organize in Italy, the Medici Forum, where the top 20 pharma or top 30 pharma are represented by, you know, a very top leader in their organizations. Most like, most often they're head of R&D, if not a senior business leader or a therapeutic area head. So it's a very, very senior network Then we have been able, thanks to the success of asset centricity, that we've been able to, um, to, to, to develop. I was keeping on hearing one comment from the uh, heads of R&Ds, which, which was the following. Francesco, asset centricity, it's a no-brainer. It's fantastic to be able to deconstruct R&D departments around single company, single product, single purpose endeavors with scientists, which are single purpose, so that all of their sharp competence and product vision and drive and motivation is single purpose. That is the way to do R&D. Hence, too bad news because our organizations we can push that, you know, that kind of model so much. But in the end, we've got tens of thousands of very competent scientists that are the resources that we have to work with. We can uh, adjust at the edges, but we certainly cannot reorganize in, uh, you know, a classically structured pharmaceutical company into an asset-centric pharmaceutical company. And then I was thinking to myself, you know, I totally understand that. It's the, the image of restructuring a house is much more difficult than designing and building a de novo house. And I was thinking to myself over these years, one day when I've got enough of a portfolio, enough credibility, enough access to resources, I will create the first ever asset-centric pharmaceutical company, which means 
a pharmaceutical company, which means a pharmaceutical company, not a venture fund publicly listed, but a pharmaceutical company based on an R&D logic, which would be a totally deconstructed R&D logic, single purpose, single team, single purpose, but multi-structured. Uh, multi a pharmaceutical company that would be organized uh, on, on individual cells, individual units, which go, come and go with the outcome of their products. A very destable, if you want, kind of structure, a very deconstructed R&D environment. And late last year, uh, I felt that uh, this was the time to do what I just said, not because I'm moving away of asset centricity, but because I wanted to create also a pharmaceutical company based on asset centricity. And the only way that I knew how to do this was to utilize an asset base that I had available to myself uh, that I could use as the foundation asset, the foundational asset to create this pharmaceutical company. And then I chose 10 of my assets, of the assets which were majority owned by Medici. I chose 10 of them and I chose the one that were more compatible with public markets because of course, one key component of the equation was that after founding this company, this company, which is going to be a long-term standalone pharmaceutical company, bottom-up operated, uh, single asset structured. I can come to more details in a second, but that this company will be a, a built to last kind of company. And so it needs to have a lot of cash, ongoing capital, structured management team that will be there for the long term. So it's a company that belongs to the public markets. So I needed to have assets that would be easily understandable for the public markets. So I've put in this company, uh, the assets which were precedented with the biology more understandable and more precedented. And, and so, and by the way, Mike, this is really very important for me to say, is not that by owning 70% of each of these companies, I rung the phone and I said, okay, guess what, dear CEO of the portfolio company, you're getting aggregated to found Centessa. I told them, I promised that I would not drag you, but at least you owe me to listen up the whole vision of Centessa. And then you decide if you want to join or not. And I really hope you join, but if you don't want to join, as long as you've given me attention, if you don't want to join, I cannot force you. We don't live in a world where, you know, thank God we're not, we are, we're not in, in, in the power of obliging people to work against their will as it should not be. So. Uh, all of the 10 companies joined because they believed in the vision that we were trying to articulate for themselves. So in the, in the first iteration of the asset-centric approach that would you described, you know, the, the, the idea was to take the assets to a point where they could be then sold onto a partner, you know, most, most often a pharmaceutical company for, for further development. Now that you've opted to create this asset-centric uh, pharma company how, how do your pharma partners you know particularly some of the ones that cornerstone the, um, the the original activity yeah how, how did they feel about you sort of you're creating what's effectively a potential rival uh, to their efforts fantastic question uh mike absolutely fair so two points first one the vision of Centessa, it's indeed after the phase two or phase three or phase one B, depending on the mode of actions, therapeutic area has been achieved. The classical part of the, the, the asset centricity 1.0 would have said, okay, let's now go and call the pharmaceutical companies, which is something that Centessa may decide to do as well, to partner out. But Centessa will also have the option 
you know, and it will be an evolving decision making because at the very beginning, Centesa would be smaller than hopefully in five or ten years. So the 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 appetite or desire, the capability of Centesa to bring to the market alone certain assets will be a function of time. But Centesa will have the option to bring things to the market itself. That is not denying asset centricity because, as I was saying before, asset centricity really has got its best value and application in the early stage of R&D because that is the best way of finding assets that can become medicines. Once they become medicines, of course, if you have no infrastructure, you need to sell them to pharma. But now Centessa has got also the inbuilt infrastructure. So Centessa is a pharmaceutical company that will have a go-to-market strategy that we are developing. It will have a go-to-market strategy that hopefully will be innovative and will be, you know, Vertex-like maybe, hopefully we'll, we'll learn a lot of lessons from Vertex. But the most important thing is that the R&D logic of Centessa will be an asset-centric R&D logic. So that front end will be completely different from any other pharma. And hopefully for every dollar that we invest in R&D, we will have two molecules coming out as opposed to one molecule coming out. But then the implementation of phase three, you know, will be, I, I cannot imagine that it would be much different than what classically can be done in the world, right? A regulatory phase three trial or a commercial uh, deployment of, of resources will have to be similar. But one thing that I do not want for Centessa is to create top-down constraints that then becomes players against R&D productivity. And what I mean is, if your first molecule happens to be in, uh, in, uh, in a therapeutic area A, and you build a sales force in therapeutic area A, it's obvious that then you will start putting pressure on on, on your discovery engines, oh, let's find an asset-centric company that works in therapeutic area A. And that is, a, it's a top-down constraint. It's not a bottom-up listen to the data kind of philosophy. So I do not, I do not, I hope that we will find a better, a better go-to-market model than a Salesforce-based go-to-market model, because that would represent a, a creation of a constraint. And then how the pharmaceutical companies that are our partners, or even the ones that are not our partners, but that we have, you know, discussed with for many, many years for potential partnerships. Um, you know, Centessa is a, it's a potential competitor, but, you know, uh, as it's any little biotech company that grows and can be sold to their competitor, right? Every company that comes out of asset centricity, even though there are three pharmaceutical companies in our funds, we have completely the right to sell that company at phase two stage to their top competitor, number four. And they have, there is no rights in which they can block any of my decision. It's really a thought partnership, not a legal struggle on, on us. So in the same way, if you want, uh, the value for them was not to pre-lock in any options. The value for them was, that is their stated interest, was to understand how eccentricity was working and to have a natural proximity to us because in their belief, God bless them, there was a high probability that in our portfolio, something nice would come out. And so they'd better be close to me and to Medici and to the portfolio companies rather than not, knowing that they had no guarantee whatsoever of being able to get a preferential right. The only right that they have is an economic interest in our funds. So if you want, is an embedded discount. If they win the auction and they're able to buy a portfolio company of ours, they will have that 10, 20% discount which relates to their ownership in our funds, right? But otherwise, yeah. we could sell them to their to the molecules to their competitor number one, 
yeah, really. You, you, you mentioned that you know, Sintessa uh, was created by taking on a number of existing, or now I guess former Medici assets. And, and you sort of said that you know, nobody was forced to you know, you know, participate in that process, but I'm, I'm sort of intrigued to understand how you incentivize the teams that were you know, previously associated with those programs to actually get on board uh, with the new model. Very fair question. And I can tell you, Mike, that when I gave those 10 phone calls to the 10 CEOs, right? You can imagine, these are 10 single asset companies <clears throat> created by founding CEOs, entrepreneurs, CMOs, CSOs. You know, the title in our company is so irrelevant because, you know, they are the visionary guys. Um, they partner up with Medici exactly because our business model is we back your vision as long as the only is that, nothing more than that. We'll back you until we see that the data is not compelling. And these were 10 companies which were thriving. Some of them had even pharmaceutical offers on the table. Some of them had crossover round of financing available to them. So these were thriving companies with entrepreneurs super excited about their own product vision and Medici portfolio companies. So clear that we are not going to bother them with let's acquire other assets. So let's. So you can imagine uh, October is when I started these this conversations. When I start doing the 10 phone calls to the 10 founders and I tell them, hey guys, we're going to go in aggregation play. It's called Sentessa. And this is uh, what it is. First five minutes was Francesco over our dead body. Why? We're doing well. What is wrong with you? You know, we are asset centricity. We are really going well. Why do you want to change? And that is where I told them, don't worry, listen up and then you'll tell me. Okay. And of course, Put yourself in the shoes of a founder. The founder that joins an asset-centric company of Medici is driven by what? They have a very clear product idea uh, that they want to pursue. So they want to have operational control of what they're doing. They are entrepreneurs and they understand that, you know, if they are right, it's very fair and only due that they make a lot of money on the back end of this. And they want to work with people that they decide to work with. So if they choose us, they're not going to have another 10 bosses above them. So these are the hallmarks that the founders are really driven by. So when I told them, Sentessa is going to be a big pharmaceutical company with a management team, and you are going to be acquired subsidiaries of this management team. And they will tell me, told me in five minutes, yeah, forget it. we're not going to do it. Listen up. The model is that you are going to be acquired, but you're going to be kept operationally independent and operationally empowered. So you are going to be driving your own car as you were before, point number one. Point number two, you are going to be incentivized on the product outcome itself. In other words, you founder of Subco number one, subsidiary company number one, as the accessory company was acquired, became a Subco. You founder of Subco number one, you are going to have X percent, and there was the negotiation, but you are going to have a direct uh, dividend, a direct takeout, direct profit share, of whatever outcome happens on your own molecule. So if you are so right that your asset is going to become you know, a multi-billion dollar outcome in the industry, you're going to have a direct outcome, direct outcome in that take. And by the way, differently from your equity ownership in the company that you have today, that direct profit share in the asset is undilutable. It's almost like a royalty, okay? You win, you will not, need to complain about money. Third, 
in addition to this, because this is a pharmaceutical company, so I want everybody to be working in one direction, you, in the acquisition that Centesa does of, of asset-centric company number one, becoming fully owned subsidiary company of Centesa, you are going to get your pro rata equity amount of your asset-centric company in Centesa shares at the valuation that was agreed and negotiated with every company. So even in case, so in case your asset dies dead in the water, you've got Centesa shares. You know, you are an entrepreneur, so you don't care about being carried by others. But, you know, just hear the facts. And also, if you're right that your molecule works well, as long, you know, you need to decide how much Centesa is going to be working. So the earning opportunity is doubled now or tripled. If you believe that your molecule is great, unless you believe that the other nine molecules that we're putting in this collection, it's all really bad molecules, but you know, the Centesa value, you can understand what it's going to be. But so the pitch and the description to the entrepreneur was operational independence, direct incentivization on your product. And that is more glory related than cash related. But then also, and you are being part of a constellation. So I can tell you that other companies of my portfolio called me and said, hey, why not us? <laughs> and, and, and I had to tell them because you, know, you are still a venture capital play. You are not a pharmaceutical acquisition candidate yet, right? Yeah. So all so of the actually, 10 uh, that, founders joined. So, so, so that's, that brings us to, to, to the question. Uh, so you, you, you selected 10 um, uh, programs to be the sort of the inaugural uh, you know, pipeline or portfolio of, of, of Centessa. What, what sort of plans do you have for your expanding uh, those, those, those programs? Yeah, absolutely. So... Centesa is a long-term standalone pharmaceutical company, and I do hope that it will become a big company. On that basis, uh, we are going to scale up and acquire asset-centric company number 11, asset-centric company number 12, when and if we find the, the opportunities that basically are going to match the, 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 the belief of Centesa. Centesa is an, op an independently operated company, right? There is a new management team, there is a board, I'm still the largest single shareholder, um, but I do not own the majority. This is not a Medici controlled company. So Centessa will acquire, that is part of the business model. It's not that it may happen. It will acquire. There is no rush. There is no need to acquire a molecule a year, two molecules a year. And it, what I really want Centessa to be free of any top-down determinations. It's only bottom up. This is, is what made the strength of venture capital. Because if I see data in whatever indication area that I think is going to work, I can do that, that investment. I don't need to think about therapeutic area, you know, constraints or any of, of any of that sort. So Centessa will have the right and the expectation and is going to be empowered to acquire company number 11, 12, 13, as long as these are existing single asset companies with, you know, the leaders, content experts in driving them and, if, of course, they, they are working on unmet medical needs, of course. And they don't have to have been initially created by Medici. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. No. This is not a vehicle for Medici exits. This is a new pharmaceutical company that I could create only because I owned 10 high quality assets as the round of financing that we have announced as demonstrated that I could sort of corral in the same place. 
So I've used my muscles in order to create Centessa, but now Centessa is a standalone free to run kind of company. And, and I think it would be unlikely that I would put another asset centric company of Medici in Centessa because you know it's unlikely that I've got all of the best companies in the world. I really hope that there are better companies than mine elsewhere. Otherwise it's really, it's really uh, scary. And with the network that we have at Centessa, with the investors that we have at Centessa, with the infrastructure that we're creating at Centessa, we are well positioned to, to be able, you see the pitch that I've given that I've described to you for the CEOs and the founders of my asset-centric companies, that pitch must be very, very powerful for single asset entrepreneurs. Unless of course a top pharmaceutical company comes to them and says, we're paying you $10 million upfront, take it or leave it. My pitch will not be very exciting. But if it's companies that still have to go through crossover rounds or late stage private rounds, my pitch, I think is going to be, the Centessa pitch is going to be pretty attractive. Right, and, and, and the company, you raised a substantial amount uh, in the Series A rounds, like you have $250 million. Um, and with the money that was sitting already in those assets, I, I understand that you've got something like $310 million to, to, to put to work. Uh, how long do you envisage that $310 million uh, lasting the, the, the company before you need to uh, go out and secure uh, additional funding? So uh, it's a very fair question. And uh, so there is a $310 million in the company. And that is enough for a couple of years of full speed, all successful products. But that is not the way in which I want to think. The way in which I want to think is really, I want unlimited cash power inside Centessa for all of the opportunities that can be available out there. And I want to be in a position where, because this is a data-driven bottom-up company, I do not want budgets top-down to have to drive us to make choice. This is the pledge that I've given the 10 asset-centric companies. Guys, as long as you produce good data that you think are great, and that the management team of Centessa does not disagree with, cash is going to be available. There is not going to be top-down strategic prioritization, budget constraints, budget constraints, portfolio restructuring. There is nothing top-down. But in order to be able to say, all of you are going to be super powered as long as data are fantastic, I need to make sure that a billion, a billion and a half, $2 billion of cash are in the bank at every single point in time. So. To answer your question, a couple of years at least of cash are in the company with this with this cash, but it's not enough. We are going to 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 we are going to to make sure that we lock in important additional source of capital in the short term uh, through any source of financing possible, private financings, public financings, uh, structured alliances. We it's important that cash should not be a top down constraint. Right. So. Um... This has been an absolutely fascinating uh, uh, conversation. In in the um, the original asset centric model, um, the objective was to get the asset you know ready for late stage clinical development with with a, with a pharma partner. In the new model, right with Centessa, what what does a good outcome look like? So Centessa is going to be a at some point in the future, a publicly listed pharmaceutical company. And I hope that that is going to be to become a bigger and a larger, more successful, productive, R&D productive pharmaceutical company. That is going to be success. So we are going to have to produce 
you know, positive proof of concepts, great pharmaceutical valuable assets. And then for certain assets, an external partner may be the best partner to really maximize the commercial potential. So Centesa may enter into billion dollars kind of transactions uh, for certain assets, especially in the beginning, because in the beginning, we will not be a big pharmaceutical company. We are embodying new pharmaceutical companies. So I do believe that in the first horizon, we will be more transaction friendly or oriented than in the second horizon. The second horizon is once we will have the airplane at cruising altitude, then we will have maybe, you know, the multi-million dollars of cash available in banks where we can say, we can, we can, we can do the five phase three clinical trials that we need to do. In the beginning, probably, you know, even though we are hoping to become a big pharmaceutical company, but we will still be an airplane uh, going up to cruising altitude. So a successful outcome in that point would be, as long as we produce material, uh, materially valuable pharmaceutical products, uh, whether we transact them to pharma or we develop, uh, you know, we bring them to market internally, hopefully the result of that is going to be a valuable pharmaceutical company. My ambition, Mike, is that in 10 years, 15 years, if things go well, we will have established a pharmaceutical company that will be on par with the best pharmaceutical company in the world, but with an intrinsic R&D productivity benchmark that would be superior to the average. And if we will do that in 10, 15, 20 years, God knows, if, when and if we'll arrive to that benchmark, then I really hope that the next pharmaceutical companies or existing pharmaceutical companies may decide to restructure because in the end, we need drugs to patients and we need to understand that we have a finite amount of resources available to the industry. It's not unlimited capital. So it's not just nice to say R&D productivity, we do better than, than anybody else. It is a strategic long-term sustainability issue. It's very difficult to be clear and clean and, and focus on long-term sustainability issues, but that is what is in the game. If we create a pharmaceutical company that it can create a lot of value for the shareholders because, and that would be a lagging parameter to having created great drugs, at a lower cost of development than the classical pharma, I do think we'll have two major objectives. Made a lot of money for the shareholders in Santessa and shown a way in which operational reorganization of pharmaceutical company could be a beneficial uh, aspect for the industry. An industry that has got a finite amount of capital available. Francesca, I'd like to thank you so much for, 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 for talking to us today. Um, the insights that, that you shared, uh, I'm sure are going to be of interest to you know, many members uh, in, in the audience. So uh, thank you, Francesco, uh, for joining us. And also I'd like to thank all our listeners for tuning in. If you'd like to hear other conversations in healthcare, follow our LinkedIn page where we'll be posting alerts to future episode releases. Until next time, stay safe and healthy. Uh, I'm Mike Ward and I'll see you in the next episode.